Hello, and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host, Tom Pepperdine, and this week our guest is Adrian Tchaikovsky. Adrian is the multi-award-winning author of Children of Time, as well as The Tiger and the Wolf and The Shadow of the Apt series. At the time of this interview, Adrian had been published for 13 years, with over 20 novels, 7 novellas, and a multitude of short stories to his name. This interview took place in August 2021, a few months after the first book in the final architecture series called Shards of Earth had been released. Good afternoon and uh, welcome Adrian Tchaikovsky. My first question to you will be, what are we drinking? I am drinking coffee and it's uh, sort of nasty cheap instant coffee <laughs> with milk. I'm normally a tea drinker, but coffee is my writing drink for no readily explicable reason. I'm also drinking it out of a mug with a spider on it, just to be Oh, actually, on brand. Perfect. And so is coffee your writing fuel, would you say? Is it what motivates you through your writing sessions? Yeah, and I don't think that's because it has any kind of magic asterisk-style magic potion qualities, but I think it's just... I feel if I'm having coffee, I'm being a serious writer person. And <laughs> if I'm having tea, I'm just being me... Okay. It's a bit like how I deal with various social media platforms, to be honest. <laughs> Did you not start drinking coffee until you had started writing professionally? When I had a day job, I used to drink coffee in the office and tea at home. And I think it's that mindset that I'm carrying on with. It. It's the work drink. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Okay. I am, I'm joining you in solidarity. I have a coffee. Ironically, it's in a tea mug. So it has a giant <laughs> tea on it just to confuse people. And you're in your office right now? Yes, breaking the fourth Ish. wall for the audience. We're on Zoom. We're not in the same room, but uh, that's been the case for many people for a few yeah. years now. Um, and is that where, you, where I'm speaking to you now? Is that where you write? It or? is at the moment. Before the whole protracted unpleasantness we're going through, I used yes. to try and get out of the house because it just meant fewer distractions. But yeah. since lockdown, I've, I've managed to translate that into writing at home perfectly successfully. So yeah, this is my, I'm right up at the top of the house. Okay. And I am basically surrounded by my library and immediately over my shoulder. This is my own books, basically. Oh, goodness. Well, it, pretty much everything I ever got sent a copy of, including translations and Lord knows what. If you um, needed a broad of, reminder of just how prolific you've been, having an well, entire bookcase dedicated yeah, to mean, your own writing. The top three and a half shelves are distinct books, which is including about three different editions of Shadows of the Apt. And then after that, it's mostly sort of translations and then short story collections at the bottom. And I'm also surrounded by, this is going to make for terrible radio, but um, little guys like these. Oh, fantastic. Um, uh, a giant yes, wasp for the audience. There are various Japanese companies mostly that produce little articulated insect models of exquisite detail. So I've started oh. to collect those. As oh, a, fantastic. A hobby thing. Was that something that you discovered yourself? Or was it a fan at a convention gave you one? No, I think just someone on Twitter linked, linked one of the Hornet figures you okay. could get and i just went down a big rabbit hole and found that in because <laughs> japan has a very a much more insect positive viewpoint generally and so beetles and wasps and mantises and crabs especially are very big and there are several companies doing really rather lovely models of them sounds like heaven for you this must have been a glorious mm. find i have a bit of a collector problem once i start collecting something <laughs> i tend to go hard in with it is, is it so i have to set myself parameters yeah. of what i will and won't take otherwise i would just get every damn thing so is it to have these as inspiration or is it just like comfort or is it just aesthetically pleasing? Uh, a bit of all of them, actually, because they are, they're all articulated in an action mm. figure style. So okay. you can faff about with them. They're, they're very good kind of fidget, fidget toys. 
And I guess with some of your stories, actually seeing how the movements of uh, the animal can go will help with the descriptions. I've, I've not needed it for that yet, but you never know. Okay. I did. There was a very complicated fight sequence in one of the Shadows of the Apt books where mm. I actually I got a, a set of rubber insects I'd bought for my son and I ended up laying them out on the floor and planning out the battle with them just so I could work out how it was all going to fit together. Amazing. I can only imagine your wife walking in and you're going, it's research. This is I'm working right now. Just playing with my son's toys. You've had many different worlds that you've uh, developed. When you've had an idea that you think may become a story, is there something about it that grips you that you go, this is something that I want to tell? And is that like a, a human political aspect or discovering a, a certain species that you go, I want to build a world around this? Yeah, there's usually some sort of germ and it's usually a world thing. One of the things I found is that every writer has a different start point for the process that I've spoken to. But for me, it's definitely world. So usually I'll have an idea and I'll say I want to write a story in a world where this is going on or where this has happened or where this kind of fundamental aspect of life is different. I'll usually go in hard with, oh, I want to write in a world where this very fundamental thing is different. And then I want to explore what that does and the, the character and the plots arise out of that for example with the echoes of the fall series i want to write in a world where everyone can shape change mm. it's not just yes there are some werewolves it's just literally everyone when they hit majority they have an animal form it's a basic staple of the society they live in and that's for me is so much more interesting than it's the middle ages but this person's a werewolf or it's yeah. the middle ages but they're a wizard the fact of magic hasn't really changed the society or the technology or the attitude in any way mm. i think i want to talk about with fantasy is because you write both fantasy and science fiction both very established as fantasy and very established as science fiction how do you decide which genre uh, to base your story in yeah the divide between science fiction and fantasy different writers tackle it in different ways again mm. to some writers it's not a thing for me because i have a, a, a fairly procedural and pedantic mind i tend to need to know where i am on that axis and even you know where i am within science fiction or within fantasy there is a lot to be said for the argument that genres and subgenres are basically bunk mm. but they are useful they're useful mental landmarks so when Guidelines. i'm writing science fiction i like to know how hard i want my science to be and then that will very much affect my writing process and when i'm writing fantasy it's very different to writing science fiction and a, a great deal depends really there's a certain amount of how much are you going to be constrained by external axioms and criteria mm. i like to know how science how much science obviously the more fantastical you get the less you need to be constrained and mm. the more towards that kind of notional idea of hard science fiction and like i say it is by no means a universally accepted no, idea that hard science fiction even, even a thing but how much i am going to be abiding by real science so for example children of time is what i would think of as a hard science story because it, despite the fact that it's basically about a civilization of gigantic spiders yeah it's all the spiders are intended at least to be scientifically plausible, which I think actually helps the impact of that idea from the start. Mm. Whereas, for example, in Shards of Earth, which is the, the new one I got out, which I would characterize far more as a space opera, yeah. it's got faster than light travel and it's got various other 
space opera standard tropes that aren't intended to be rigorously scientific because although it seems arbitrary to a certain extent you're in a dialogue with your readers and your readers expect a certain type of experience Mm. and if you jolt them too much by missing the mark on how you're presenting the science fiction how you're presenting the magic then you're jolting them out of immersion in the book. And immersion in the book to me is the most important part of the reading experience that I want to give people. Yeah, so you you definitely have an awareness of the audience as uh, you're writing in a genre. Yeah, it sounds very shallow. And I think there (laughs) is this wonderful idea of the writer in their ivory tower kind of creating timeless art. And they disdain the idea of whether or not the reading masses shall understand their, their glorious work I mean, I I was an unpublished aspiring writer for 15 years. I always had in the back of my mind when I was writing the idea, I want this to be read by other people. I want other Mm. people to enjoy this stuff. We're a social species and it's art is to be consumed, basically. Art is to be consumed by others. That's what it's for. Mm. And obviously a lot of people, having said that, I will immediately qualify it by saying a lot of people write stuff purely for their own pleasure. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. But if you're writing it to be published, you're not writing it purely for your own pleasure. You're writing it in the knowledge that someone else will read it. Yeah. And all writers begin as readers. So you want to inspire someone in the way that you are inspired. Or I even think. just entertain yeah. them, to yeah. be honest. The, the fact that you're writing something that is meaningful and inspiring and can potentially put new ideas in people's heads and change their opinions and expand their minds is all good. But at the end of it, there is also an idea you writing something because people can finish that book and think, I really enjoyed that story. I would potentially like to read more of that. Anything beyond that is also ideal, but that's, that in itself is a worthy end for a book is simply entertaining someone. Mm. That is also something art can do. And God knows being entertained in and of itself can be a profoundly worthy thing, given how uh, grim the world often is. Yeah, absolutely. So when you're starting out with your ideas and you've got this uh, concept where you know, need to create a world where this element can exist, or actually I already have an existing world and this will expand it. How do you start mapping out those ideas from connecting the dots in your head to start world building? So with the planning, usually things will percolate around in my head a bit. And what, what will frequently happen is I will have three or four kind of secondary ideas kicking about from just stuff I've thought of Mm. at some point, which will gravitate towards this key idea. So you'll almost get uh, almost the uh, creation of of this little solar system Mm. of little orbiting ideas that all fit nicely together and balance one another. And at that point, I'll take to a Word document, as simple as that. And I will just start quite methodically world building. One of the things, I come from a background of tabletop role-playing games, which also has a big world building aspect if Mm. you are the person creating and running the game, which has given me a bit of a framework of how to go about things, what sort of things you need to think about. And Lord knows I am constantly being educated in extra aspects that I haven't previously considered. I was on a a panel once with Robin Hobb, And we were talking about world building and the question from the moderator was, is there a particular aspect of your world that you're aware you don't tend to deal with? And I was foolish enough to say, I'm pretty sure I've got it all figured out. And Robin Hobb turned to me and said, what do your characters wear? And I just really no, that's an entire area I've honestly not really thought much about. Um, So yeah, you could, I'm always trying to add aspects, but usually I'll start with the big stuff 
and again the, the, the nature of the setting will to a certain extent influence what the big stuff is so if it's a science fiction setting i'll be thinking about what can the technology do because that will obviously have an enormous knock-on effect on everything else are there alien races? What are the alien races? What sort of societies have arisen? So you start with the big stuff because the big stuff will determine the small stuff. And in a fancy setting, is, is there magic? What does the magic do? What is the fantastical element? And then it's a bit like dropping a stone into a pond. You just see what the ripples at that point from the big thing you've just lumped in. Yeah. And so I guess with the big thing, that's a very much a what if question you're asking yourself. And there's a lot of speculation that you're formulating but as you mentioned earlier with your science fiction, you gauge how m much science you follow. Uh, so when it comes to researching for your world building, I'm really interested in how you uh, research for fantasy elements. Because I feel with scientific elements that there are journals, you can see where technology is progressing. There's a lot of articles about that. How do you research fantasy? Okay, certainly with, with the science aspects, my first axiom is very much there are people in the world who know these things much better. And thankfully, usually people who know about a particular topic are usually absolutely delighted to share that knowledge with you. Great. So, for example, I spent a very informative day at the Natural History Museum with their entomology department talking about the mechanical problems of having giant insects and things. Weirdly, also completely fix a plot issue with Children of Time at the same point, just because of some stuff that they were discussing about an expedition one of their people had just come back from. There's a, a chap called Nick Bradbeer, who is a, an act a submarine engineer by trade, mm. who helps, who is also an amateur, effectively spaceship designer and he's my go-to person so the water-filled spaceships and children of ruin i talked to a number of people on there but he and i had a very detailed discussion of what it did things like momentum and inertia and that kind of thing so, so um, how do you make that contact to a certain extent if i'm stuck i can usually go on to social media and say does anyone know anyone who knows about this okay and someone will turn up but that's to a certain i've got a loud enough voice now that that's I can, I can leverage it but also I so for example Nick Bradbeer came to me he is a, an associate of a fellow author okay. Emma Newman he's a live role player which is a field I've been in I've kind of collected a cloud of social contacts just through having shared pastimes with them okay well that's that's useful yeah it, it is one of those where the eventually you find that you know, the world genuinely can turn out to be quite small, especially, I think, in the United Kingdom, in that you're probably no more than one person away from someone who knows the thing you want to know. Yeah, that's excellent. And I knew about the entomology department, and that kind of makes sense, that you can just contact the Natural History Museum and say, I'm an author, is anyone willing to talk to me? Except uh, that the head of the entomology department is the brother of a friend of mine from university. So again, <laughs> it's just this weird connection thing. And it, the thing is, I guess I'm middle class, middle class. I've never gone to posh schools, mm. but I did go to university. And I'm, I'm in that weird sort of middle ground. My father is a woodworker by trade, but we would definitely kind of going up the education. It was, I, I grew up with the assumption I'd probably end up going to uni and that kind of thing. So mm. it's that weird. But essentially because they shared pastimes hobbies random connections you can still pick up a, a remarkably wide net of very useful people to draw on yeah oh absolutely i think 
networking such a, a naff word really but just being social and engaging with people pays dividends in so many ways and it can be very intimidating for uh, introverted people. I, I, I would characterize myself as an introvert and networking for its own sake is a thing I absolutely can't mm, do. Yeah. And I know this because it was something that I've had to do for work on occasion and it was dreadful mm. going to these dire kind of business breakfast things and trying to in any way maintain realistic human connections to any of the people yeah. there because everyone there was there to try and sell themselves and their business. And therefore you just felt you'd been dropped into a shark tank. But for me, the point of social connection is always that shared interest, that shared pastime. Yes. It's role-playing games. It's and obviously now it's just the writing in itself and conventions and so forth to give you a much bigger network of people that you're at least loosely in touch with. Absolutely. I think you know anyone listening to this is automatically part of the writing community, however on the fringe they may feel. One thing I will say is I did not go to conventions or do any writing classes or do any sort of writing stuff that touched on other people until I was published. And I am in a terrible way very glad that I did not because I am not socially adept and I was so phenomenally desperate to get somewhere with my writing. And I think if I had gone to a convention known somewhere, let's say somewhere in this bar is an editor who might look at my manuscript, I would have probably got myself blacklisted from the entire <laughs> UK publishing industry by making that much of a wretched nuisance of myself. Asking for someone to give you some pointers on their specialist subject is a bit different, but I think if I had been in a position where I could have massively annoyed published authors and publishers and agents and editors and God knows what with my demands to be noticed, <laughs> I would have done that and it would have gone very badly for me and just been a, a complete pain for everyone I was tapping. And I think it's mostly because I'm sufficiently socially unaware that I would not have known where the line was. There are people yeah. who, I've, who I've absolutely seen at conventions who are, you know, they're, they're not published authors but they are very personable and they're very good at this sort of thing and they can chat like actual human beings with people and that's if you can do that then that's probably a really good avenue for you but I absolutely know that I was not one of those people and I would have got it dreadfully wrong yeah that's interesting and I think focusing on the writing and doing that first before meeting your peer group, it's certainly applicable for, for some people and it worked out, which is <laughs> the key thing. Mm. So that's good. So it is being able to read the room and then yeah. utilizing that is a skill that not everyone possesses, but if you do possess it, it will get you places. I do know people that will nicely chat and then get a short story in an anthology. Honestly, I know people currently on major awards shortlists who have come into the uh, the community in that way and done extremely well. But it's, it's like, it is a skill set and it's a skill set some people can do and some people can't. And God knows I can't. I'm very much concerned with status within group, which is a profoundly unhealthy and un unhelpful thing to be, but it's not a part of my mind that I can do anything with. Once I was published, I at least effectively felt I am now allowed to be in this company and I have a you know, sufficient status, even if it is the new person who is only just published, mm. that I'm permitted to be in these kind yeah. of areas. So now that you 
have several books published, award-winning books as well, and a publishing deal and an agent and all of these things. Do you feel that has the drive changed from when you were writing for yourself to now that you're established and there's an audience? The drive absolutely hasn't, but the, the confidence genuinely has. Certainly, I think since Children of Time started to get traction, which was really the just a colossal levelling up of my writing career, I'm able to relax more into the writing and experiment more with the writing. One of the big things is, for example, I have been able to try and be funny. One of the things about Shadow of the App is very much an epic fantasy, and epic fantasy yeah. is not traditionally a funny genre. Mm -hmm. It takes itself seriously, which obviously that's the tradition, that's the way it works, and that's fine. So recently this year, I've had out One Day All This Will Be Yours, which is my time travel novella from Rebellion, and it's basically a comedy. I've experimented a bit with lighter prose before, but it's. But I don't think I would have ever dared do anything like that earlier on in my career purely because it's taking a risk and I think I effectively I, I feel secure enough in my position within the industry that I can take risks knowing that even a fairly big misstep is probably not going to completely destroy my my writing career and I think there's always a certain amount of nerves even at this point you yeah. always feel you're being judged for your most recent book and you always feel with the new thing you're writing Am I pushing too far this way? Am I being too experimental? Am I not being experimental enough? Is this going to be panned for this or that or what? Depending on precisely what sort of project you're working on. But I feel that I've got far enough now that there's a bit of a safety net. Yeah, which no, basically means I can be more comfortable writing beyond my comfort zone. Yeah. And so. actually, that's what I wanted to ask. Is that, so now you've taken this risk and, and published uh, a comedy novella. How was that experience? And how has it been received? It's been received very well, and yeah, the comedy certainly seems to have landed, which is a relief, because frankly, I'm, I don't think I'm a particularly funny person by, by nature. I'm not a comedian, first and foremost. But yeah, the other thing is you get to a point where you're comfortable having faith in getting an honest reaction from the various layers of people between you and the reading public, and my agent, and then my editor. And it, I think if I turned out something that I felt was absolutely rib-ticklingly hilarious and absolutely wasn't, one of those people is going to take me quietly aside yeah. and say, look, you might want to have another <laughs> another look at this. So, so is there going to be more comedy in the future? Or do you feel more confident adding elements of comedy in your writing? This is one of the things that this has done is my regular prose style is less po-faced than it once was. And so if you look at, let's say, if Shards of Earth is my most recent book, there's a certain amount of irreverence of tone and lightness of tone and in the narrative, especially when you're dealing with particular characters. So some of the characters get much more serious. But for example, the kind of the spy character, Javier Mundi, gets a lot of wry humor at the expense of bureaucracy in his department. And then you've got Ollie, who is the drone operator, who is basically just a very sweary, irreverent and punchy character. And so I'm more confident in writing a serious narrative that still has comedy in the way it's written, which I think is... It's not something I would have dared to do at the start because I would have been unsure where my kind of tone was. Mm. And now so, I feel I'm, I'm just a bit, I'm, I'm effectively, I'm a bit more secure just moving that kind of foundation around a bit. Yeah, it's interesting how the words you wouldn't dare to. It sounds like this was always there and that in drafts you might write something irreverent, but then delete it, go, no, that's not the tone I'm going for. 
or is this something that you've not tried before and you're trying and finding success? It's the sort. I think it's the sort of thing I could conceivably have done. I think that I would have, because I would have been that twitchy about it, I would probably have reined myself in to the extent that I would have failed at both ends. You right. see what I mean? So yeah, it would yeah. have, yeah, it would have been your kind of solemn epic tone, nor would it have been remotely funny. So it would have just felt a bit uncomfortable. I think it, it's one of the things that my earlier writing, one of my least read writing, as far as I can work out at the moment, is a novel I brought out originally as a serialised magazine piece, which is called Spiderlight, which was then picked up and published entire by uh, Tor.com in the States. That is actually my first kind of comedy piece. But the reason I felt able to write it and give rein to that was because it was coming out in this odd little serialised yeah. format so it just felt like something i could play with more so there is early adrian tchaikovsky comedy out there available spider light is still in it's still certainly available in e-format at the very, yeah. at the very least from tour.com and it's been translated into spanish really only into spanish but it's one of my very few spanish um, translations but they clearly get your humor that's what it is <laughs> i think that basically it's one of those things where it was purely a fan inspired right. The Spanish fan community is enormously enthusiastic. So if they get hold of what they want to see translated, it often does happen because they get onto the, the publishers and push. Going back into more of the inception of your ideas, do mm. you write out a clear structured outline or is it more, this is where I want to go. I'm going to sit down, write a few pages and see how close I can get. So my standard procedure is I plot to within an inch of his life. and. Okay. So literally to the extent I will have a chapter by chapter breakdown and then within each chapter there will be like usually about two or three sections and then sometimes each section will then get anatomized into a series of things I need to happen. Frequently things like information that needs to be revealed to the reader or passed between characters and things like that that everything then gets strung over. So my standard process is to plan very heavily which i think is which is I'm, I'm aware and again some writers do this and some writers don't like it's not a an either or dichotomy and there's there is a whole continuum strung between those two poles but i'm very definitely at one pole by my normal yeah. normal procedure yeah i think it doesn't always work mm. the planning tends to be most rigorous at the beginning and the end and the middle can be a bit wobbly yeah. And also every so often I'll realise that I'll get two thirds of the way into the book and realise actually the plan doesn't quite work to get me from here to where I need to be at the end. I'll have to rejig okay. two or three chapters to, to make it work or to add in things that I realise I'm missing. Yeah. So with initial plotting then, uh, you're doing that before you even attempt a first draft. Oh God, yes. So I, I get called prolific a lot. Yes. Which is a bit, I've always felt is something of a double-edged sword when most people apply it to writers, although possibly me being overly sensitive. I do not write more than most writers write on a day-to-day -day basis, as far as I can work out, based on those writers who do actually report word count and so forth. In fact, the writers who actually report their word counts tend to report more words than I do. Mm. My first draft is usually at least 90% identical to my submission. And that's my secret weapon, is that. And I put that down entirely, the fact that I plan. Yeah, I'm a planner myself. It does absolutely pay dividends to plan. So how long would you say your planning process is? From when you start getting an idea going, oh, I want to build a world around this, how long are you spending building that world and then going right now I have a world I'm going to spend x amount of time 
doing my structure mm. outline it's hard to say because the first step is that percolation process where the yeah. ideas are coming together and that can take usually that's going on while i'm working on something else anyway and it's often going on on the book two or three ideas slowly bubbling away and i do make kind of brief notes because frequently i'll get an idea and it'll be literally more what if we had a world where this happened so i'll always jot these things down and then i'll come back to them and use them as and when i i feel they've matured mm. and it's not uncommon to find that I'll have two or three quite distinct ideas that will eventually converge and become one book between them. It would have been something I think at the beginning, I earlier on in my career, I'd probably have resisted and just thought, no, each idea is its own book. But I've realized actually, no, you can Frankenstein these things together at, yeah. the, at the planning stage. And then you don't see the joins when the thing is, is finally written. But that stage can take it any amount of time. I've had ideas that have been bubbling away for a year. I've had ideas that have struck me like a flash and I've been writing that within a few weeks. The actual formal planning stage of me putting down the axioms of the setting and then moving on to working out what characters arise from that setting, what, what the interesting story is that will showcase that setting, which is how I tend to approach it will usually just be a couple of weeks because at that point, everything has got to the point where it's just, it's almost just a matter of picking the fruit. The fruit has yeah. already been growing in the background. Okay. And when you're, say you've got two or three ideas percolating, once you've written your outline and you're writing, you know, sort of your chapters and your subsections, when you get stuck, like you said earlier, sort of sometimes you can get two thirds of the way uh, through a book and say, oh, I might need to rewrite. Do you step away from that job completely to let it percolate and start on one of the other ideas that you're percolating? Does that ever happen? Or is it always one book at a time? It's always one book at a time. I've got all of these pots at the back of my mind, but the foreground stage is definitely, this is the thing I'm working on at the moment. Mm. And I might have a couple of things waiting in the wings, but they'll have to wait until it's over. With the, the rare exception, occasionally, if time presses, I ne may need to stop, get a short story done, and then come back to it. But as far as full-length novella or novel-length projects, there's only ever one on the go. So usually my plans work or I can at least adapt on the fly. Yeah. And it's always like somewhere between the half and two thirds mark that things go wobbly. <laughs> I think that's just yeah. because those are the bits that get the least forethought. I've had a couple of books where things have just gone dreadfully wrong. So the second book in the Tiger and the Wolf series about two thirds of the way through, I realized that I'd spent the entire first two thirds of the book building up for a thing that was not actually going to happen. And that all of the running around that the characters have been doing was completely meaningless, given the way I, I had intended to bring the book to a close. Yeah. So I had to stop then and effectively just rewind, I think, at least a full third of the book and oh, then gosh. just start it again and take it all off in a different direction. And that was a pain. Yeah. And I suspect that at that point, that's where I'm massively losing ground compared to the people who can just write by the seat of their pants because it's not a skill I'm very good at. It's, it's a bit like... I've got a good sat-nav, but the moment the sat-nav no longer fits the road ahead of me, I cannot navigate my hand. So the, the biggest roadblocks for you when writing are not so much, I don't know what to write. It's that what I am writing isn't working. Yeah, it happened with The Doors of Eden and about the same kind of point, not quite seriously, but frequently what it comes down to is the basic story looked absolutely fine on the page, but you realize that the actual kind of the emotional journey you're taking the readers on or the particular character arcs of individual characters do not work 
within that story and therefore at that point the story has got to be changed so that the the overall feel of the book doesn't just fall completely flat and i think that it, it's very difficult it's a limitation in my procedure that it's very difficult to see that on the page when mm. you're doing that chapter by chapter plan because rationally it all looks like it should work but you don't necessarily know the characters well enough to realize mm. that they're not going to do what you want them to do but also it's, it's more that they're not going to turn out to be the people you think they're going to be and at that point two-thirds of the way through the book those people need to do other things to make their personal part of the story satisfying. So where you've had th this happen a, a few times, what's the quickest uh, resolution that you've had and what's the longest resolution? For The Bear and the Serpent, it took a long time. And what I ended up having to do was effectively just break down everything that was going on in those chapters. I almost went back to the start. I wrote a three or four page treatment of how the book was supposed to go in order to try and work out what it was that wasn't working and how I could all make it all come together again. And that was extremely difficult. I think I came perilously close to actually in starting the book entirely again, because I'd made a very, very grievous misjudgment about how the book should go and what the story was about. So it doesn't happen often to me, but it certainly does happen. Because I get very invested in what I've written, it's very hard to suddenly say, actually, no, I need to junk this enormous amount of stuff because I'm used to basically being able to use pretty much everything I turn out. With The Doors of Eden, it was a little different. I could surgically take out the three or four chapters that weren't working and atomize them down to this and this, restructure everything. I've got a handful of kind of standard tools where if a scene is started at a different place, tell it from a different character's point of view, tell it in retrospect. Yeah, sometimes if it's dragging, skip it and just say it happened. Sometimes you really do want to tell, not show, Yeah, frankly, despite the, the standard wisdom on the, on the subject. So yeah, having that structure so you can see quite quickly when you've reached a point that's not working. What tends to happen, it, it, it's not a sudden, oh, this isn't working. It's the thing that will slowly creep up on you. Frequently with me, I will manfully try and ignore this feeling because I'm so invested in what I'm doing and I really don't want to have to go back. Hmm. And I will usually get two or three chapters in just laboring on with the whole thing becoming more and more stilted before I finally have to accept, no, no, this really isn't working. And I've got to say, I should really learn because it's always right. That feeling is always right. If you've got that gut sense, the thing isn't working, then pushing ahead isn't going to solve it. Yeah. But I am very stubborn um, <laughs> when it comes down to things like that. So I usually end up wasting even more time because- But the, fe the feeling is consistent. Each book where, where you've had that problem it's yeah, and it can be about them. different aspects, but it's definitely that kind of, you've got a room full of yes men and there's one person in the corner who's just tutting and shaking their head and that's the person you need to listen to. Yeah. So when it's all firing on all cylinders, it's just, there's no tutting. Yeah, I still have doubts. One of the things I'm very aware of is I am not by any means the best judge of my own work. Yeah. And so you still wonder, is this is it just not working on this and I'm not realizing it? you can go completely mad with that kind of speculation because there's no end of it. You, at some point, you've got to also have confidence in yourself as a writer. Mm. And again, I'm lucky enough that I know there are literally people whose job it is to read through this stuff and tell me if it's, yes. if it's a problem. So if I did massively misstep, hopefully one of them is going to catch it. Mm. And, and has done it. That's yeah. my agents and editors. They all have a list of things. They think, well, you need to look at this. You need to yeah. change that. You need to cut out this vast swathe of world-building exposition that you've left in, in chapter four. And there's a weird kind of, at that point, the whole thing becomes a bit of a team effort as to yeah. what people finally get to read. Yeah, I think it's interesting that no matter how long you write, 
you still have doubts. And I know almost every published writer I've spoken to has reached a point in most of their stories, most of their novels, where they get a form of imposter syndrome, where they wake up one morning, sit down to write and just go, I've forgotten how to do my job. <laughs> and, and I was just wondering, have you ever had those days, even though you've got a very strict outline structure that you're following, that either the words don't come or you just have critical doubt over every word that you write? I certainly have, but it's frequently because there is genuinely a structural problem. And I may not be aware of what the problem is, but the fact that if I'm starting to labour over it, I'm finding it hard to write, then it's probably not going to be very interesting to read. And so at that point, when I finally bring myself to accept it, I need to start looking at well, what is the problem? What is it that's not working? And usually there is something, or usually I can find another way of doing what I'm doing that feels a lot better when I'm doing it. So there's, there's some subconscious part of me, which is obviously plugged into the process in a way that I'm not. When writing and having these struggles, have you actually, when you've thought about it and identified it, it's not actually been anything to do with the the outline or the structure of the story, but there's actually something external impacting you? And how did you overcome that if you did? I think that, especially given the way the world has gone, there are certain fantasy tropes, let's say, that I don't think I could write about. There are certain kind of views on the future I don't think I could take purely because I think they've been very poorly served by the genre in the past and also frankly often very overdone and because sometimes it would feel in massively bad taste. Writing in the far future is not a problem because you're in the far future anything can have happened between now and then to bring you to whatever situation you want to write about. If I'm writing in a book that's set within the next century I think it would almost be criminally negligent not to at least acknowledge things like climate change. Yeah. For example, I think it would be insanely hard to write a book set in the year 2100 that just assumed it was like the early 21st century, only yeah. we have flying cars. In a fantasy book, I think I would really struggle to write a book set in It's All the Kings and Queens and Princes and the Promised Child of Privilege going to fulfill his prophecy and defeat the Dark Lord. Fantasy is traditionally a very conservative genre. Mm -hmm. But even with my early stuff, even with The Shadows of the App, I've always been aware that I don't want to simply write a book about the return of the status quo. Mm. Not the band, obviously. <laughs> no problem with the band particularly, but a lot of fantasy is, has a very circular narrative where the only force for change is evil and defeating it and returning things so that the king is back and everything is lovely is that is the the point of it all and i i'm i don't really buy into that kind of conservative social orthodoxy mm. in a way that i feel i could convincingly write about it actually i think what i've identified in what you write is is often it's is conflict in a clash of cultures um mm. whereas it doesn't have to be a human culture. We're a very polarized society at the moment. And I think in a lot of your writing, there's polarization in the societies and the, the conflict. And so I was wondering, is that a conscious thing that you write as a critique of a polarized world? Or is it your attempt to try and understand polarization? in culture. A bit of both, to be honest. Certainly some of my more recent books have been more obviously reflecting real life political trends mm. than others. And again, it's generally the ones that are set in the modern day or the near future, because 
it just feels that these things are big enough that you couldn't really write a book that didn't yeah. deal with them in some way. Weirdly, the scariest one is my novella Ironclads, which is a really quite unpleasant sort of future dystopia military piece of military mm. science fiction has become steadily more and more relevant since it was written than it ever was when I was actually putting it down on the page, which is not good. But it's interesting. This is one of those things a lot of science fiction writers have, be, have said is you have to be pretty damn fast getting your dystopias out there onto the shelves because otherwise <laughs> yeah. they're just there. But yeah, it's listed under current affairs rather than mm. dystopian fiction. You've mentioned earlier about editors and having the people who read your work once you've finished with it. Do you ever use uh, beta readers before it goes to your editor or is it straight from your desk to an editor? So usually my beta readers are effectively my editor and my wife, both of whom I, I, you know, have, a, have a, I think, a pretty good grasp on things and both of whom will absolutely tell me if something isn't working for them where a book has a particular sort of sensitive topic i will try and find beta readers to go over that for example i've got a book coming out towards the end of the year called elder race one of the things it deals with a great deal is depression and depression is something i've dealt with myself on occasion but i also got hold of someone i knew who had a lot of issues with depression and especially medicating depression which is not something i put personal experience of and ran it by them so that i could make sure i wasn't making any kind of chronic missteps by their view and obviously yeah, you can go through as many beta readers as you like for that kind of sensitivity work and it doesn't necessarily mean you're covering all the bases because everyone has their own take on it but i felt with that sort of thing that getting at least one other person's eye on it before I submitted it was important because you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's recently been issues on Twitter where uh, people have written books where they've taken their personal view and not considered the viewpoints of yeah. minority and groups. The, the thing is, I'm at some point, that's... I feel that's almost certainly going to be me. There'll be something that I, I won't have even considered in my white male yes. confidence is possibly going to be a problem. And I'll make that misstep. And I think I'll then have to be extremely careful about not to react in the way that you see some people react, which yeah. is denial and doubling down, which is, which frankly never helps, but also just looks very bad. Yeah. We're all flawed human beings. We all can't consider the viewpoints of every other human being. If someone has an issue with something that we've done, listen first. And I think that's something, it's something that I've seen as a theme in your writing as well, is empathy with people that, or, you know, spiders, for example, people that, or entities that are not generally empathized with. And yeah. I know you're on record a lot with spiders are a fascinating species and a lot of people dislike them, but... I'm going to show you a spider's viewpoint. I'm going to make you empathize with a giant spider and realize that this other life has merit and needs to be considered. And I know that you've been fascinated with zoology from a young age. And is that something that with your writing is, is always going to be an aspect that you're going to seek out to empathize with animals and are there creatures that you haven't yet published about that you're really keen to write from their viewpoint i think it's a big part of my writing and it's always it always is going to be and i'm always going to be pushing in that direction and if nothing else i'm certainly not the only writer in that 
region, but it's not a terribly heavily populated one, which means there's a lot of space for me to try out different takes. I, I can get two books as different as the uh, the Spiders and Children of Time and the bioengineered Dogs in Dogs of War, for example, which are two very different stories. But there's still this idea of putting people behind the eyes of something that is very different mm. and making it work. And there are plenty of places to go. There are animals, there are aliens, there are machines, there are all manner of perspectives that I'm, I'm keen to have a crack at. It's a rabbit hole because you can keep, you can think, all right, well, I've done this, <laughs> but there's actually a variant on the thing yeah. that I could also do, which tells a completely different story because just when you change your viewpoint, even slightly, I mean, if... <laughs> I could probably just write spider books for the end of my days and make them all different, but I don't think people have quite that much. But there are, there are in Children of Time, you get a lot, quite a lot of stuff about the ants mm. on that same planet. But I haven't really done a hive mind perspective story yet. Therefore, that's, there's a whole vast range of possibility that mm. I'd quite like to move into at some point whether it's ants or whether it's an alien species that has a similar kind of setup or something like that. I was going to ask, actually, your friend in contact at the National History Museum, have you spoken to them to say, okay, thank you for helping me with this. Are there any insects and any sort of creatures that would be fascinating? You know, and, but for inspiration... <laughs> my my friend there is, my friend is he's a uh, beetle specialist and uh, I'm sure that he would have a list of beetles, but there are so many beetles... Mm. And again, I think I probably haven't done a beetle specific book yet, but there, there's, again, you could write beetles until you ran out of years and <laughs> you'd still not have scratched the surface of how many beetles there are and how many bizarre things they do. Of the ideas that percolating at the moment without you know, sort of wanting to divulge too much, is there a specific creature or world that you're really keen to start but haven't yet. Oh God, there's a whole list of them. I'm, I'm in a position at the moment, obviously I've got quite a lot I need to plan for. So I probably don't want to start throwing away around ideas that are still half formed in my head, but I'm working on a fantasy novel for the first time in quite a long time, which brings together a couple of ideas I've had kicking around for oh, a good couple of years. But beyond that, I'm looking at a whole new set of novellas. So novellas are an interesting um, writing experience. I, I actually really love writing to the novella length, despite the fact I'm very much known for enormous doorstop mm. books. Yeah. Because one of the things you do with a novella, especially a science fiction novella, is you can get one idea very satisfactorily explored without necessarily needing to pad it out with a lot of other stuff. If I'd been asked for, we would like to contract you for half a dozen new novellas, that's half a dozen completely separate ideas I need. So you said you had a series of novellas that you're currently fleshing out or, or planning. We're just inking the contract, but I've already started pulling together ideas right. and ideally organising them so that there is at least like linking themes between some of them and nice. things like that. Do, can we have a, a number on how many novellas or is that still being negotiated? Um, half a dozen. Okay. Half a dozen. Nice. So, and with Ideally the two yeah. sets of three thematically linked, but that's purely okay. for my own... And My those are all science fiction? fiction? Probably, but again, the, you know, the slider on how much science there is in science yeah. fiction can vary quite a bit. Okay. And the fantasy that you're working on at the moment, is that still mm. in the world-building stage or is that at the outline? Well, one thing I, I try to do is I don't... I, I try and stay clear of um, any kind of writing ruts. Yeah. And so 
I try and at least do something new in each project, whether it is writing to, you know, about a particular concept or in a particular way. And in this way, what I'm doing is rather than planning everything out rigorously in advance, I've done the world building, mm-hmm. but now I'm just sitting down and writing about the people in the world and seeing uh-huh. if basically after a few weeks of this, I'll, I've given myself a deadline by which I'll see, I'll take stock. I will either have a kind of an emergent narrative. It's going to be a bit of a weirdly structured book. It's going to be a bit of a mosaic kind of novel rather than having this strong of strong heroic fantasy throughput that, that I would normally have gone for. So either I'll have that or I'll at least just have a large amount of fairly formless writing that at least fleshes the world out for me and I can sit down and plan from that point. But I will see how I do with just this, just sitting down and writing stuff. So this is brand new for you. This is not... Yeah, so far I've got, I think, four sections, roughly chaptery sections. Seems to be all right. The problem is, like I say, you get very twitchy. I'm doing something experimental on the writing, on the structure of the book. And I will not be in a position to really say whether it works or not. I'll have to wait until someone else gets their eyes on it. As part of the historic record in August 2021, (laughs) there there was this attempt... Whether it sees the light of day, we'll see. Yeah. But no, that's fascinating. So that is you writing, just putting a few characters in a situation and then just seeing how that flushes out. What I'm trying to do is actually, I'm trying to avoid, I'm trying to avoid a lot of the tropes of fantasy, whether it's like traditional sort of 70s, 80s fantasy or, or 90s and on with more sort of gritty fantasy. But I'm, I'm trying to write about the world and the people rather than here is the great things that great people do. I'm trying to write about effectively about a cast of characters who are just trying to avoid being in a fantasy novel (laughs) or avoid being in a fantasy novel's plot at least. And with those characters, are you exploring them purely through these scenes that you're writing or are there any kind of character sheet bios that you've established before you've written the scene? The the characters I'm conjuring up, I've got like a whole page worth of just little one-line descriptions of there is this character and he does this and that kind of thing. And then that's the germ that I, that I start with and then just run with it and see where it goes. And like I said, whether any of this will get the stage where anyone else ever even reads it, I have no idea. But yeah, it's just I am sufficiently ahead. I feel I can devote three or four weeks to just experimenting like this and see whether it actually produces anything. And actually, that's just something that just occurred to me because we didn't really talk about character much before, but you did say what can unstick you when writing a plot is that you write through it and then the characters aren't who you thought they were. And have you ever established a character quite strongly in your mind before you start? Or do they always form as you progress the plot? I generally know them before the start because they arise organically out of the setting. One of the big kind of advantages I take out of starting with the world is that both the plot and the characters should fit that world very well. I know who the people are who live there. I know what their concerns are, what their sort of interrelationships are, what their opinions are of different groups, what their histories are, which means that the characters can spring quite full formed onto the page. And I already know them pretty well. What tends to happen, though, is the things that they go through then start to change who they are, because obviously that's just how life life and fiction work. (laughs) To the extent that you get a character who you knew had a particular arc and trajectory and they were obviously going to end up like this, and then halfway through the second book, you realise actually they are no longer that person and their arc isn't that arc anymore. And if you kind of railroaded them into it, it would be 
it would strike a really wrong note for the reader. That's not the kind of the ending or the key moment or the the contribution to the plot that character needs to make anymore. And that it's that slow shift over time that gets me rather than a misstep at the start. Is there any particular story that you've had where the characters ended up in an emotional or physical state that was completely unexpected to what you originally had for them? Okay, so here's the thing about my planning. The one thing I do not plan, the one big question mark, is the final denouement of the book. So my planning will take me all the way. I will generally know who is going to be there, mm-hmm. what the face-off is, which, who, who are the sides, what, where the battle lines are. But how that will turn out, I leave to the momentum of the book at that point. So in a sense, that's always a, a mystery. And that, and although I've had absolute looks of horror from other authors when I've described this, because it, I think that's one thing that a lot of authors who don't plan a lot do plan. They know how the book will end. Mm. But with me, I plan everything else. And then I let the natural sort of impetus of what has happened and where the characters have got themselves tell me how things will go. And the, the frankly, the biggest example of this is Children of Time, where the final resolution between how it goes with the humans and the spiders was completely on the fly and i did not know how it was going to go and frankly it's very obvious looking at the options that it could have gone a lot worse for pretty much everyone concerned (laughs) so i that must give you a real drive to finish a project because if you don't know you want to find out i'm guessing there's a, a certain level of curiosity just motivating you to finish uh, your book. It, yeah, it's very much, it's the the capstone. It's extremely satisfying to get to that final end point to mm. find, oh, that's how it turns out. Because <laughs> it thus far, touch wood, mm. it has always worked that I've got to that end point and it has been absolutely obvious at that point how things are going to go, but it's not in any way that I necessarily would have envisaged if I'd started off and tried to nail it down. If, in fact, if I decided at the beginning of the book what the end of the book would have been, that end of the book would have been much more predictable. I think it's, it's leaving that open generally gives you room for that extra twist, that moment of extra character that you wouldn't necessarily have anticipated and planned for at the start. So when you're nearing the ending, of a book do you feel what's your emotional state if you're nearing the finish line so the pacing of writing i tend to be quite quick at the beginning and then when you get about a third of the way in there is this very very long slow slog through the middle Mm. but you get to a point and it varies from book to book where you just feel that tilt that if you go all the way up the hill and suddenly there is nothing but a downhill slope and everything starts accelerating and i write a lot more in each session it all falls into place very quickly and very naturally. So it is, it's a bit like a toboggan run at that point, yeah. and it, or the final approach of an aircraft. You just, <laughs> at that point, you're, you're whooshing down towards that final scene with an inexorable momentum. So certainly for me, that's very, much, that's very much what it feels like if I've done my job. And if not, it's usually at about that point where you'd expect it to tip that you realize <laughs> it's not working. So once it's actually finished, it sounds like there's a massive cathartic release that it's just you've landed you've stuck the landing yeah it's one of the there is that that standard kind of writing thing about having writing and having written and the relative values of both but the, yeah. you know, the fact of actually having a completed first draft even though i know i'll have to go back to it before i submit it and then i'll go back to it with my edit my agent's comments and then three different goes around with the with the editors and at each point the whole thing getting more and more of a chore yeah until the final galley priest where you're just slogging through correcting punctuation and things like that. But yeah, the simple fact of, right, that is now 
completed and it's been you know six months or nine months work and now is the, the final thing and this is at least halfway satisfactory and i'll go back and cut a couple of thousand words and change a couple of things that didn't quite work but in general you know because as i said my first drafts and my submission drafts were pretty similar it feels done at that point and anything else is merely just printing it up on the plate yeah. so at that point, do you feel any form of need to celebrate your first draft completion? Or is it simply, right, save, go to bed, come back tomorrow, start redrafting? Usually the thing, the first thing I previously would have taken it physically to a, a copy shop in town or these days or over the last year, I've just been ordering online, but just getting a paper copy. Because one of the things I have learned is you, I don't see things on the screen yeah. errors wise. I see them on a paper copy in much more detail. So that's become the ritual is once I've got that paper copy ordered or printed or whatever, that kind of feel that's done now. Mm. And especially if I'm ordering it from somewhere else, it'll take a, you know, a week to turn up. And that means I've got a week where I don't need to think about it. I've done the thing. But I part of the writer's malady with me is I have a very limited amount of time I can go without actually creating new stuff. And so usually by then I will give myself a few days after which I generally back on with the next project because i get very twitchy when i'm not doing i'm not making something mm. and all other parts of the writing trade like edits and so forth do not tick the same boxes inside my head so how do you structure a writing session is it the same time every day is it for the same length of time every day since I quit the day job, I, I used to be a, I used to be a late evenings writer. Since I quit the day job, I've, I've actually started writing in the morning and getting my major chunk then. And then frequently I'll be doing edits or something writing adjacent in the afternoons. And then as I get towards the end of the book, I'll probably start fitting in extra like evening and weekend and extra sessions because I've got that, that force behind me uh, driving me on. As far as how I just keep going on it, especially during that long uphill slog in the middle, there's a lot to be said for force of habit. The idea of just writing something every day is very deeply ingrained by now because, you know, it, it was 15 years before I got published and it's been getting on for 15 years now since. Insanely enough, good God. But beyond that, my other kind of, my other secret weapon in a way is I always, when I'm not writing, there's a part of my mind which is always working on what happens next. And it's something I'll generally be turning over when I'm going to sleep at night. To a certain extent, it's a bit like winding up an elastic band. There's always something that's wound up and ready to go in me for when I sit down. I don't spend a long time. I don't sit down and just stare at the page. I know at least the first paragraph of what comes next is there. And hopefully that will then lead to the next paragraph and the next. It's just having that ready to go, I think, is a bit of a godsend. And it's it means that even in the slowest bits, at least I get that foothold. I get that foot in the door each writing session and once that's there i can generally just keep going now that you're writing in the mornings has it replaced the day job is it a, a nine o'clock start or is it just as soon as you wake up usually i'm up to see my son after school or whatever frankly i'm not naturally a morning person but that enforcedly turns me into one mm. so at that point i'll usually be up i'll have a cup of tea i try and set aside a session where i'm just reading whatever i'm currently reading mm. And then I guess it usually is about sort of nine o'clock or thereabouts that I'll start. And the morning they'll, they'll then just be given over to me working through. I try and get a discrete section of the book done, not meaning not an entire chapter, but a distinct sequence of events that would then usually end with, with an asterisk or whatever yeah. to go on to another one. And that can be a longer or shorter thing. But I try and I, I tend to get particular bits like that done whole in a, in a single session if I can. 
There's some writing advice, which is leave it mid-sentence. Or if you finish a chapter, write the first line of the, the next chapter. You don't subscribe to that. You're very much, I do this section, and then once it's done, I'm done for the day. Yeah, although having heard that, I think there's an awful lot of good sense in that. I think my inner mental process of just effectively rehearsing that first paragraph in my head fulfills the same function. But I, I absolutely can see the sense of doing that. It's just not something that I, for whatever reason, particularly clicks with me. And you're quite regimented in working just Monday to Friday, because you said like when you're nearing the end of a project, mm. you add weekends and evenings. So I'm guessing it's more of a Monday to Friday, you're doing it as a job. Yeah, yeah, that's basically how it's worked out. And, and it, you know, it varies. And also, you know, weekends can also be for edits and things like that. So it's it doesn't necessarily mean I'm not working. It's just I'm not necessarily writing. But certainly since going full time as a writer, it's fallen out that way. And I don't know if that's just me being fairly slavishly chained to the idea of a working week, which is a bit of an artificial construct. I think, like you were saying before, that the writing habit, you know, making it habitual, having a structure and structuring time off, structuring time with the family, structuring time to see mm. friends so it doesn't consume you and lead to burnout. If, if I gave myself twice as long in a day to write, I wouldn't write twice as much. Mm. And if I forced myself to write twice as much, it would be dire. Because I think when I've written a chunk, my brain then needs to regenerate something to be ready for the next bit. I can't just burn through something for 16 hours straight in a day, as some writers can. You, you hear some writers just um, blitzing a book in a couple of weeks, which I find incredible. But suddenly I, I have a certain amount of writing stamina that needs to replenish. And one thing I did find, I think it was probably very useful, although I'm not doing it now, to be out of the house and writing elsewhere to find somewhere a library or a coffee shop or somewhere that you can put some headphones on and write without home distractions and I think that certainly when I was making the transition from part-time to full-time that really helped because it's really easy to get stuck at home and end up doing lots and lots of other stuff mm. it's a weird transition the idea of just reminding yourself that even though you're at home you're actually also working. I mean, I think this is one reason why a lot of writers get a shed or something like that. You have a particular place and when you are there, you are working, you're a writer and you're not constantly going off and, and doing things around the house or getting distracted on social media or whatever. As things start to open up again, I might well revert to going into town at least some of the time. I think traveling around a bit helps getting out of the house gives you a new mental space. One of the things I found I frequently have interesting ideas traveling to and from. I write very well on trains. God, the most of the plot of Bearhead came to me, incredibly enough, in a dream at a uh, Eastercon, Easter which I've got to say that's never happened since, but it's just sometimes a change of landscape actually helps just get gen generic inspiration going in the head. Mm. Yeah, I, I think having a, a dedicated space or having a place that you can commute to rather than just going upstairs, it triggers the alpha waves once you're moving and that, that can be uh, massively beneficial. Moving on to writing adjacent things that you mentioned at conventions there, but also social media, connecting with your peers, connecting with other writers, or do you consider yourself as part of a, a, a writing peer group? Do you have people that you bounce ideas off? Oh, well, yeah, very definitely. One of the weird things that's, that's actually arisen out of the current situation is I am interacting with other writers more now than I would have done previously, purely because there are the Zoom calls and there are various other things like that. There's a weekly online get-together a fellow writer has organised, oh, wow. which has been an absolute godsend. And it also, it's a space where a bunch of writers can just talk about aspects of the trade, really, in a kind of a confidential setting. 
and that's been enormously um, useful on a mental health front mm. and just on a, a general social front. But even before that is, yes, I have to stop myself thinking of myself as the new guy still, which I think would be a bit rich given the number of books and the number of years yeah. involved. But I think it's the thing that a lot of writers still have is that you still think of yourself as the up and coming new author even if you've been on the scene for a decade or more but there is definitely a uk writing community and i'm definitely a part of it and cross fingers at some point in the future we'll be back doing convention and i'll get to meet all those people again in the flesh you mentioned there that it's it's good for mental health which completely makes sense because it's such an isolating job and for the social aspect do you feel that your writing has benefited can you think of anything specific from these weekly meetings where it's informing on the writing, or is it just more wider aspects of the industry and just how you position yourself within the industry? Certainly some people have thrown open actual structural writing issues there, but for me, the writing part is still quite private and personal and a thing that happens very much inside my head. But talking about the aspect of publishing with other writers is useful. Even things like, I have a very long history of not getting my working titles for books accepted. I would say at least a third of my published books are not out under the titles that I use to submit them. And sometimes you get to the point where where you just throw away, this is what the book's about. I really need a title for this in about a week. Otherwise, they're going to drop this one on me, which I really don't like. I I know that you're on record with Bearhead was originally... Bear with me. Yes, it was. <laughs> and I have no regrets, except not being able to use it. There's a very bizarre history to Doors of Eden. Doors yeah. of Eden was written as a book called The Brain Garden, which they really didn't like because it said it sounded like a zombie novel, which I guess it actually <laughs> does. And so we were quite late stage thinking, well, what on earth are we going to call this if we're not calling it The Brain Garden, which they were very adamant we weren't. Prior to that, I had been writing a book called Doors of Eden, which this doesn't happen to me often, but it it happened to me in this case. I got seven chapters in and it stalled completely. It's a completely, it's an utterly different book to the actual currently published Doors of Eden. And there was just a world building element I had overlooked, which completely undercut the entire book concept. And this is something that it happened a lot before I was published. I went through a whole series of projects where I got to about literally chapter seven every time. And this is not working. I'm going to go on something else. But it hadn't happened to me for years. And that was a blow. But I got that far. And unfortunately, I got as far as mentioning that there was this book, Doors of Eden, to my publisher. And somehow that ended up on Amazon as upcoming book. Oh, (laughs) so I had to know I'm not writing that book anymore. I'm writing a different book. I'm writing this book, The Brain Garden. And then they said, we don't want The Brain Garden. And I had a bit of a thing. I think, actually, the title Doors of Eden really fits this book. (laughs) (laughs) And so let's just resolve this time paradox that we appear to have. Yeah, so that was that was a thing. An awful lot of my books have gone out uh, with not the title they were mm. originally written, and that's just a thing that happens. With socialising with other authors, I'm going to talk about the dreaded poison chalice that is social media. In our current age, in 2021, do you think it essential in any way, or is it just mildly beneficial, or is it a tightrope that should sometimes be avoided? I don't know. So I am not very good on social media. My social, my kind of platform of choice is Twitter. I'm on Facebook, but it's really as a personal thing. So I generally, I do not particularly interact with people as a writer on Facebook. It's only as a holdover from when that was the platform and various people I only know on there. 
and in real life, as it were. I have seen writers who are extremely good at social media and it helps them an enormous amount. So I think it's a lot like that thing about going to conventions when you're uh, you're pre-published. If you are good at it, it's really handy. And if you're not good at it, it's no damn use at all. Mm. And if you try and use it and you make a nuisance of yourself, it's going to come back and bite you. Yeah. It's very much like that, only probably not quite as immediate as you being in a room with people you're annoying rather than mm. just being in this great void that is Twitter or whatever you're using. Lord knows you can build a very strong following and one keeps hearing about the writer who is asked by their publisher before the contract is signed, how many followers do you have? Mm. What is your social media presence? With the assumption that if you don't have some sort of established base of people you can market to you are not going to get published and i don't know if that's a thing or not because mm. thank god i got in the door before that sort of thing was a yeah. consideration but i am not terribly good with it myself i would like to believe that you didn't need a social media presence in order to be an author but honestly i don't know because i was already established before that sort of thing came in mm. if, if someone did want to ask me a question or get hold of me then just tagging me yeah. in a tweet in twitter it will usually do it unless i'm completely snowed under with stuff just to sum up uh last few questions so it's my belief that writers grow and develop with writing every story that you write with the last thing that you wrote and completed do you feel that you learnt anything specific? Was there something that you experimented on on your very last piece? And what did you learn? The last thing I completed was the third and last book of the Final Architecture series, first book of which Shards of Earth had just come out. And to start with, that's really my first actual purpose written science fiction series. It's my first space opera. Mm -hmm. It's dealing with a number of parts of the genre that I personally hadn't really dealt with before. It's managing a great big kind of galaxy scale story, even though the focus is very much on a small ship full of people. It's a long time since I've actually sat down and written a book which was specifically intended to be a series. Children of Time has a sequel, but Children of Time was written as a book on its own. Mm for example. And so I was rediscovering a lot of that. And also, I think just advancing my ability to juggle multiple characters and multiple viewpoints. There are quite a lot of characters and stage managing it so that everyone gets their spotlight moment. It's a challenge in and of itself. And it's one of the things actually that I ended up deviating considerably from my own plan in the last few chapters, because I suddenly actually these characters aren't getting their due. I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. This is how all the things that they've been doing up, up to this point can pay off in a way that I hadn't originally planned. So I think also just a, a certain amount of editing on the fly in an entirely controlled way, rather than just frantically trying to pick up broken pieces is something that I've managed to do on this book that I haven't really done before. Yeah, so it sounds like it's like quite validating in that certain aspects of it it's like having a, a planned trilogy you'd done before, you, you'd had series mm -hmm. before, as you say, the on-flight editing. I wasn't sure how the final result was going to look, essentially. And looking back on it, I th I'm, I'm genuinely pretty, pretty happy with the way it's turned out, which is right. good. That is good. One last thing. Is there any piece of writing advice you find yourself returning to? The thing I, I, I need to keep reminding myself of is the idea that you need to listen to the voice, whether it's the voice of your beta reader or whether it's the voice of your an editor or an agent or whether it's simply the voice inside you that I was referring to that's saying this isn't working, this isn't right, because that voice is usually right. Mm. And the more the more you don't want to hear it, 
the more right it is likely to be. <laughs> Excellent. That's a perfect time, I think, to wrap up uh, the interview. So I just like to say thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me on the show. And that was the real writing process of Adrian Tchaikovsky. If you'd like to learn more about Adrian, you can find all his details on his website, shadowoftheapt.com. He's also very active on Twitter under the handle aptshadow. And if you'd like this interview, please consider leaving a review. I'm currently a team of one, and the more positive reviews I get, the more authors are likely to want to come on the show and share their process with you. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, or until the world ends. trusted friend or your sworn ally no it's the harshest mistress of all and life is just a chain a moment spent a thousand hellos and goodbyes maybe a love life it's Shifting.